they're bad, they're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Hello, Jenny Raceford. Hello, David Hellard. How are you? We're halfway through uh, recording a, a, a. We were already apologising to Nick for this episode, um, and we thought, no, we'll put it in the, we'll put it in the episode to explain just um, how hard this is going to be for Nick. Um, well, <laughs> and it could be, it could be quite difficult for you as a listener because this is a big one. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> This is a. This is. We're talking about around the world. This one is epic in terms of its in its listen, uh, and, and I, it hasn't even finished. It's not even been completed yet. Yeah. So JD dropped off the last hour because um, he had to go to work in the morning. <laughs> but this is a story about Carl Bushby. If you don't know about Carl Bushby, um, he started a walk around the world. The idea was to go from the tip of south america all the way home to the uk via walking over um over the ice sheet between america and russia that Very does exist at, <laughs> at times at times that no one had ever done before in the history of the world and well, they, um, they did during the last ice age i think was the was the last recorded, <laughs> recorded moment that someone did it <laughs> But they didn't get it on Strava, so we, it doesn't count. But um, so basically, we've got them on the next podcast. <laughs> um, so Carl has been doing that since 1999. Is that right? Was it 1989? Could be either. It was something. Yeah, 1999, and not only that, but for reasons that will be explained in the podcast, he's recording this in Mexico. Even though he's still in Iran, and because of that, he was in some uh, random internet uh, cafe that had they still have internet cafes over there, and um, and there's a smoother machine that intermittently goes off at a coffee grinder, and we also completely lose internet repeatedly. So Nick has to somehow <laughs> <laughs> edit this into. Three or four episodes. <laughs> it's kind of going to feel nostalgic about the first episodes of BBR then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, the stories, it, it's a story, but the stories within the story, there's about three or four stories that by themselves would be their own episode. Um, <laughs> so if you look at this and think, wow, this is long Hold on. It is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. So thank you, Nick. Thank you for what we're going to put you through now. And thank you, listener. For, uh, and and if, you, if you like it as a listener, imagine the amount of work Nick's been through. But, um, well, let's, let's get back onto what's happening at the moment, J.D. Rainsford. Jane, it was, uh, well, have you, have you been hearing? I've got, this morning I was on my phone and suddenly Google has realised the kind of guff that in my Google News feed, I now click through. Um, <laughs> You're getting tailored, tailored guff. Yeah. So I've got Ironman News. I've got Farshoe News. I've got New 100 Meter World Record News. I've got Dutch, uh, Russian Doping News. 
all of this in a morning on Google, um, and, and I wasn't specifically looking for the podcast. I was just there, and it's like, wow, that's that's good. This is the prop like Facebook. Facebook are really aggressive with this. You show it. Facebook is like a, uh, a, a sort of like a really desperate ex-girlfriend. You should throw a sniff of interest at something, and they are all over you, like like an absolute rush. Like someone tags me into something to do with Iron Man. And that is all that is in my Facebook <laughs> for like the next three months. Literally it's like about it, you know, bike chains and uh, gels and training plans and those weird swimming. Have you seen there's a there's an advert on Facebook for essentially it's to help you swim. It's, it's, it's tailored for triathletes. It's to help you swim without a pool. And basically it's like an inflatable block that you lie on and then two elastic bands that you attach to a door and you wang your arms around as though you're swimming. <laughs> and it's just... Wow. And they keep getting served with different versions of that product. Imagine, imagine, because the thing is with Iron Man, you've got to train twice a day if you're training to full capacity. So you probably have to train in the office. So imagine someone walking in a meeting room and you're there lying on the table. <laughs> with, yeah, how you'd explain it. Um, yeah, it well, it's so almost it's, like, um, it, it's like a parent at Christmas when they, uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned at some point, oh yeah, that's uh, I did, I, nice cheese, isn't it? And then you suddenly are bought this whole ream of cheese because they've got no idea what to buy for you Christmas. Like, hey, remember that time you once... <laughs> Mentioned. It's coming reams. Is that is that the collective noun for cheese? A ream of cheese. <laughs> What's a huge a board? Boards of cheese. Boards. <laughs> but um, right. Well, I mean, where should we start? Firstly, have you seen it? I think it was it'd be on Unilad, Unisport, the new hundred meter world record set in India. <laughs> Go for it. What is it? This is amazing. So. There's a it's sport in lads. India. Wait a minute, I don't. I, uni lads, it doesn't. It's not like ESPN or anything. <laughs> sport. So I'm taking. Oh, sorry, I'm taking it. This sport bible. Sport bible. <laughs> sport bible. Um. So th- there's a a race in in India, and it, it just says, "Look at this guy, who he he runs. He beat. He runs nine point five five for the hundred meters." And Usain Bolt's record is 9.58. And they've calculated that off the fact that he runs something like 14, uh, 14, uh, 140 metres in a certain time. And therefore, his time must have been. So he's doing this in a race where he is pulled by two buffaloes through water. So, you know, we've talked about Canicross in the past. This is levelling up Canicross to the mat. I'll send you the link. It's just called Kambala Buffalo Race. I like the simplicity. Isn't, isn't this? Isn't this? On and the, the noise of the crowd as well. I, I I never finished all the series of home game. I know when they did Last Man Standing, there was something similar in maybe Indonesia, except you were. It was more of a. Um, it it made more sense as a sport because it was you you were actually on a cart. And you were yeah, yeah, no, skidding right, across walls. Whereas this one is just the guy running, and um, <laughs> I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can hear it from my headphones. The noise. <laughs> I can hear that. <laughs> I can hear that. And wow. The guy who ran it as well. He is 
absolutely ripped because I assume you must have the most ridiculous stomach muscles to be able to actually keep yourself from falling over. Um, and the crowd are loving it. So if there's any way a do-badder can take part in that. <laughs> but Google we'll, the we'll images. recreate it. If you can recreate that. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm watching it now. And, and that's the thing. The, when you look at 100-meter sprinters, they look as the like I mean they put they look stacked right and they look amazing, but these guys in India I reckon look more like Greek gods than sprinters. They are so toned. It is they're they've all got ten packs. It's amazing. Um, have a Google. Packs. Yeah, what do you think, JD? Yeah, I think. Uh... It's at this point you normally turn this into a challenge for me that I fail, but I will not be doing this one. <laughs> do you think I they've got a couch to in, in Mid Sussex? A couch to two buffalo, <laughs> kind of plan for people. Imagine, like, imagine, I want to see. Imagine tearing it round park, turning up for park race with a couple of buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you, you don't start at the front. If uh, 20 sec, 20 minutes, that was my first one, go to the back. Okay. <laughs> but I want, I want to see you're footage allowed, of the you're first. Do, you're, allowed to do, you're allowed to run with your dog in park, right, aren't you? So, uh, you I'm know, sure they haven't outlawed it. Exactly. Is there a park run in India? There must be park run in India. Any, any Indian listeners, I, I know we've got some. Like, Have you heard of Kimbala? And how often is this practice how frequently are these raced you know is it something that most people in india would have been able to see or can go to see um and and how do you get involved as well because i want to see i want to see an eight-year-old being pulled or, or, Just, or do they get little calves or is kambala like like cheese rolling like it's just done in one particular town and everyone thinks they are mental <laughs> yeah yeah, so that was the first story for today, which I thought was pretty good story. Um, now, we also have, we've got to talk about ch- cheat shoes, right? Um, we've been talking about cheat shoes for years, and now, I mean, Elliot Giles, incredible. Have you heard about Elliot Giles yet? Nope. So, British 800-meter runner, and a few weeks ago, he already set a really, really good time and set a new personal best, indoor personal best, of 1.45, what's the exact time? 1.45, which is a pretty good time for 800. It's not, it's the kind of time that he'd won a good indoor race, and it's the kind of time that, as a Brit, you get excited at because it shows promise of what could be, you know, he's not a world beater yet, but you think this guy's someone to watch. So two weeks later... He takes almost two seconds off his time, 143.63. So he takes two seconds off a PB, which was already a PB, in two weeks. Um, second fastest time of all time, British record. And obviously, what's he wearing? The new Nike um, Nike spikes. So we're going to see it. Then if, if the Olympics happens, it's going to be 800 metres up records galore absolute record fest which in some ways is quite exciting but in some ways it's quite sad because it's because of the shoe so 
update on that. We probably haven't got much more to say on that, have we? Because we've. Yeah, I, t- I take everyone... it though we, we we prefer it because of the shoe, as opposed to prefer it because of the doping. I mean, if everyone was doping, that would be an exciting, exciting Olympics. Um, but at least with the well, shoe, it, you have to wear the shoe, and it's obvious that that you have an advantage. No, I I think I prefer. I prefer to lose to someone doping than to lose with someone because they've got better shoes than me. Because at least with at least with the doping, you you know they've risked it all. Like they're actually having to make personal sacrifices for this, and you know you might you know you probably be getting uh, the medal back from Russia in eight years time. Eight years. <laughs> Whereas I want, to, I want to be beating someone who I know is risking it all. That's what <laughs> <laughs> they're putting it all on the line. Whereas this guy's just got good shoes, right? And so Ted Coe's obviously whose record it was. He said it's you know it's great that things are moving on, but he's being wiped out of the records very quickly um, because of shoes. And I think that's quite sad. Is that a generation of athletes are? Um, that's proper. That's proper elitism, isn't it? You can afford yeah. the shoes. You can you can knock two seconds off. Yeah, actually, I don't know how expensive their track ones are. I assume it's similarly expensive. Um, but yeah, so you didn't hear it here first, but you heard it here fifth that this Olympics, when it happens, <laughs> probably, probably 10th or 12th by the time this comes out. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it would help you in in jumping events because you get more speed. Uh, well, maybe not because maybe it doesn't. I, I, from uh, apparently it helps you in the last stage of the races because it it reduces the impact and therefore the tiredness. So it, it doesn't help the sprinters yet. But that slight propulsion would that help you in long jump by a tiny amount? Would it help you in triple they, jump or would it do they, actually do they have the same change your rhythm in, in the other in other um, athletics fields about about shoes or is it just I mean, in running? I I don't. I've never seen anything come into jumping that has been suggested that it's too bouncy but you'd think i mean like go go gadget shoes could, you'd think there'd be a more is obvious that on, is that on running new, that. Uh, new range go go gadget <laughs> yeah is there, yeah does, um, do they, when they when they get their go go gadget shoes are they are they being advised by a dog on a radio at the other end of the line <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, but that leads us on to actual doping. Wait, I just want to have a quick question. Right? We have these yeah. discussions about running because running is pure, isn't it? Like it is the great leveler. If you know, it doesn't matter um, who you are. You can be faster than the next person if you put the time in, if you put mm. the effort in. You know, and. Uh, when it was kind of leveled yeah. with playing you know, with, with shoes and everything. And this is bringing an element of um, sort of elitism into it in the sense that, you know, you've got to pay and there is a discernible difference. Do cyclists have this, have these questions? Because that is pure, that is like purely about, you know, there's a, of course, you know, there's a, a, a large proportion of athletic ability. Of course, that's still the, the main, main thing. And, you know, um, uh, body size, and uh, and that makes a difference. But 
they're, they're all yeah, about I mean, the technicality, aren't they? All about, do they is, has anything happened in cycling where people go, oh, these tyres are giving people, you know, such a distinct advantage because they're £2,000 and no one else can get hold of them or something else? Do, do, do those conversations happen in cycling in the same way? Or is it, or is it just Yeah, about I mean, they do. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. And But also they have far more interesting conversations about cheating because there's so many more ways to cheat. So one of the the issues at the moment is that you can hide electronics within the bike that can actually act as a motor because they're becoming so small. What? And so hide electronics in the bike. You can, get, you can get bikes that look like normal. Yeah, it looks like a normal bike, and when you hit a hill, it just kicks in a little bit. Um, gives you that <laughs> extra up, extra ease up, up the hill. Race with an e-bike, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they look exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, genius. Um, why, why take drugs when you can just get on a road and get on an e-bike? Um, but they've recently, and they, I, can't, I, I didn't read the full article, so I don't know the reasons why. They've re- recently changed the rules on your hand position. So there was a Chris Froome when he won the Tour de France. Yeah. The I think the second time he had, you know, the year which was the most sensational year that he ended up, he went into the back of a camera bike. So he then ended up running with his bike yeah. uh, that year. He, um, one of his plans, his tactics within that was to try and they knew he was going to be good up the hill. And so what he did, he near the top of the hill when everyone was expecting him to be good, they were on his wheel. He then broke but over the top, he'd been practicing new technique where you dip down, you put your hands on the front, and it's meant to be, in theory, it's meant to be unbelievably good for aerodynamics, but incredibly dangerous. And he did that to then get a, and they, so on the way down, they were like, what's happened? We thought we'd all be catching him on the downhill, and that's why we let him get away on the up. But he's now got this new technique, and it was amazing. Um so they've now banned the way you can hold your hands at the front of the cycling, at the front of the handlebars. I don't know whether that's – I didn't read enough into it. I don't think people care enough <laughs> for me to go and research now. Um, but, yeah, they're always having conversations like this. And even with Ross and people like that, when they look at Ironman times or they look at triathlon times, and if you, if you think of yourself as a runner, I mean, you, you for example, you've always had this – four-hour marathon hanging over you and you you know if you trained really hard and focused you could do it but say you were right under cusp say you were someone who was a two you know whatever time it is where you've you've put in like two three seasons back to back of hard training and you just were seconds off um in cycling you know you can buy that with a better bike or better tires or whatever it may be and and that's that it's people are so aware of it that it actually changes your motivations to try and get times as well because when you meet someone who's a runner who's got sub three or sub four that's a mark of respect when it's a cyclist you're like okay where do you work golden sacks okay <laughs> i get it <laughs> yeah I, I know how good you are <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, and so, but I'd, I'd say for the for the Olympics, it, it hopefully won't that much, make that much of a difference. Partly because 
they almost brought out Nike almost brought out the shoes at the wrong time for the Olympics because they brought the shoe out after the last Olympics, which is amazing for marathons, but it's given all the other race uh, shoe designers the chance to create their own versions so that now Nike have actually got the shoe for the track and also had that sanctioned all the other all the other shoe companies now have versions of the Nike Zoom. They're not quite as good. Um, some say some of them are. And so actually, hopefully now all of the runners will have some version of the shoe. And um, it's more the second tier. And if you're someone who's a metal contender, you're going to be sponsored by Nike, Adidas, maybe Reebok, you know, who, and so you're going to get some great shoe. It's more actually the impact it will have on club sports and on the second tier. If you've got, if you're a 17-year-old England um, hopeful or county champion, you won't be getting these trainers for free. And that's where it will make a difference. It could make a difference in future England selection and funding decisions and, and those people on the cusp because they're the ones who actually, if you're struggling to get funding, funding funding's not a, not a lot of money. And so if you're if that is your real goal, you're not on that money at the moment or you're having to work your ass off to get it. So that's going to be the real issue of it is is that it's that inbuilt privilege, essentially, of being rich that, yeah, you'll get the shoot and you'll have more chance of qualifying for funding and getting into all the squads and teams because you're rich. So, and if, if that happens here, imagine how that's going to be in places like Kenya and Ethiopia, where you only get the sponsorship once you're selected. And so, yeah, but so, that's the, that's the way of the world. On the flip side, I don't actually have hmm. to improve. I just need to start making more money. Yeah, yeah. And be your Iron Man your bike will be the biggest difference between anything you can do because you're going to train oh, no, my ability fairly to hard. Swim. My ability to swim, I imagine, is going to be slightly more important. I think you'd save more time with a faster bike than you would on the swim because you're not, you're going to, you take an hour off your bike easy with a good bike. You're not going to take an hour off your swim. You're not going to take an hour off your run. You make that much of a difference, your bike. That's insane. Oh, oh my, it's just massive difference because, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, well, just it just does, it just does. And I go out, with, I go out Briggsy, and you know, I've it, the, especially as the type of bike you're going to be buying is you're not even going to be on the cusp of the good bikes. No. the amount you're prepared to pay for your road bike and ross mack for example he liked being sponsored because he'd get given five grand bikes and you can't charge five grand for a bike unless it makes that much of a difference and that yeah so if you bought a two grand bike yeah you're right you wouldn't save an hour but you're not going to use a two grand bike no. No. what are you going to use I have no idea, but it will not be a two grand bike. Unless this is why we're hoping to get Chrissy Wellington's bike. Unless anyone out there wants to gift me a five grand bike and uh, see see how it see how even I can perform on it. That's the uh, 
Like, I, like, how about this? How about this? You, J, J, if someone gives Jody a five grand bike or a, a bike in that in that um, standard, they are allowed to choose his kit. <laughs> Isn't there? Isn't there, wait, like the design? This, this, the design. Would, he can't go out dressed as a dinosaur. This would be funny, but I'm sure, like as an Iron Man, really prissy about that kind of stuff. Like, you know. But but more, they could they could decide the instead of like a bad boy running top, you'd have to you'd have we they could get to design you any kind of top they wanted. Nice idea. Do you know what? How about I was that? Thinking about, I was thinking about this. How to how to fund this? Um, and I had I heard this idea a while back about these guys that wanted to fund. They had a uh, they had a car in um, Indy five hundred in NASCAR, and they couldn't they needed sponsorship for it, but they couldn't find you know the like, the millions that they needed. So mm. they it was it's a little bit like the um, the guy that got people to sponsor a pixel on a website, mm. and mm. what they did is One they had pixel. like. They had these little dots all over this car, and on each dot there would be a, a different logo of a company. And they managed to get something like sort of like a thousand dots on this car, each with a different company, and raise their money that way. Um, I wondered if there was something similar to be to to be done with that. If there, it, it, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just throwing ideas out here as to how to fund. This. How about this? People can we can do a a top that has people's faces on and every person that donates a certain amount it adds their face to your top so you're then just a sea of faces then but you can't, can't you do that you can make it a sea of faces but then it comes out as one big face um, <laughs> <laughs> pato banton <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> <The> team banton <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like this idea, and I think people would put a tenor in to get their face on your, on your dead body. On oh, my dead body, <laughs> exactly. Imagine that. All these people are responsible for, <laughs> for the state of this. <laughs> now, um, the interestingly still enough, about, still talking about, still talking about uh, cycling. I think you got a doping story. Well, before that, actually, and this is just a minor story. I, I do feel. A bit sorry for Iron Man. They cancelled a whole load of their races. And understandably, they've come in for massive criticism because they're not allowing refunds, which we, we spoke about when that first happened in racing. And it might just be that they can't as a company. And that is harsh for people. But also they're being criticised by the fact that they're, they're cancelling so late. And some of the races are in April, for example. And so people have been going through six, eight months of training already. And it's really hard, but I just don't know what Iron Man can do on this. And I actually feel quite sorry for them in that should they be cancelling races six months ahead when they might be able to go ahead? No, it doesn't make any sense. But cancelling two months out also seems quite harsh on those training. But it, it just seems like one of those circumstances that whatever they do there, they're going to be criticised. And uh, The thing with yeah. Iron Man is that they don't – they. I think with a lot of race organisations, they put themselves in a good position by how they act in the past. And so when it's come to things like COVID mm. and things go, you know, not going their way, then people are understandable and overlook it. But I think the problem with Iron Man is that these kind of practices have been going on for a while. And 
and they haven't covered themselves mm. in glory. Um, just that's just through looking at because yeah, of course I'm sent so much Iron Man um, uh, <laughs> stories, and so I, I know more about this than, than I care to know. And I always see the really negative stuff as well. So it must it, it, mm. it's obviously Facebook has understands my viewpoint on this. Um, yeah, I think, I think yeah, you're I seen think as a profiteer. Exactly. But I think, you know, just how, how you've acted in the past, I think the same things happened with general with race companies that if you've if you've been good with refunds in the past, if you've um, you know, if you the thing is, it's about empathy. If it's like properly understanding. But I think, you know, I think the tone in which I've done it because they, they've shared um, some of the stuff and they, you know, they'll say things. I think the one issue that people had with it, a big issue is that they say, oh, you can't do it in Manchester, but you can do the one in Sweden. And people are just like, what? Like, I'm not going to go to... <laughs> I'm going to go to fucking Sweden to do it. That is that is not because I suppose in America, if you're an American organisation, you can just say, mm. okay, you can go to one of the other ones in America because it's a whole continent essentially, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and Florida is always going to be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Florida does it no matter what. Cause it, but it, they treat Europe as though it's the US, and though it's like really simple to kind of like as though you can go, you can switch between states, and it, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, and, and that's the interesting because um, there's a, there's a guy called Sean who's a really good Irish runner who's um, who is well uses caffeine bullet, and he's training at the moment. Not only is he, you know, we spoke a few weeks ago about how um, Imogen is it was only allowed two three k outside of a house is now three k, but he's trying to be a, a a national level marathon runner, only able to run two three k now 5k from his house so um yeah really really tricky but he's um he's now entered into the rex marathon that it's this came out a few weeks ago i didn't think of that i mean i wasn't sure whether to mention or not but they're now they're positioning themselves as an elite pre-olympic qualifying opportunity time opportunity and all that uh, and also uh nice tester so they've actually limited their fields and are now trying using the rules of it's this you know this is their jobs their elite level can we do this so that's going to be really interesting to see if it goes ahead and to see how they manage it and what the response is as well from the authorities and public because that is really going to be the first tester of how likely it is we're going to be able to put on these mass events in the future particularly things like london in the octo in october and um, but anything from July onwards, really, Wrexham's probably going to have a huge impact on whether that happens. Um, but yeah, on to Russian doping. It's, it's the knock, but it's a knock-on effect, isn't it? Because it, every mm. event that doesn't go ahead pushes all those people back. To, if they're not giving refunds, pushes everyone people back to the following events. So new PTO, amount of new entrants for things like... Um, you know, Bolton and all that, it's going gonna, gonna to just be harder and harder to get in. Um, yeah. Which means, I mean, the, which means I'm going to have to go to some weird places to do my own. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Brilliant. <laughs> and then you're going to have to get a bike out there as well. Um, yeah, a bike out but, there and to some odd, like, it, it'll be like, so, I'd love the idea that in order to, in order to, um, at we had to cycle there. No, 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 exactly. That would be good. I said, some people would, um, but um, 
uh, to Bangwood, wouldn't he? <laughs> cycle, cycle to the cycle to the Ironman, <laughs> do the Ironman and cycle back. Um, yeah, I love the idea that in order to increase capacity, um, just to so you know they could get they could get income coming in, and they could also honour all the people who need the refunds. They start doing some like one-off ad hoc Ironman races in some weird places. That would be that that would be incredible, wouldn't it? Just yeah. Do that. I mean, that, that. I think that's that's the kind of thing that um, you know, ones ones that would never happen again um, around even, really even that or, places. Or they'll the better version would be because if it's an Iron Man, then it's going to be expensive. They're going to have to go through all these Iron Man brand processes, and whereas there will be opportunists who, for example, you get the Outlaw, you get. Um, What's the big one that Chrissy set the world record at? There are other Ironman distances that aren't officially Ironman. And so we might see quite a few races like that pop up just to try and soak up. And it could be really um, undermining for Ironman strength. Ironman has been untouchable, really, as a brand at that distance, whereas now with so much pent-up demand and also so much frustration, if someone now's the time to launch a rival series, especially if it's slightly cheaper, so when people are making their decisions, they then think, why not go for whatever the new brand is? So it, it could be that we do see either individual races in countries or someone with enough you know, money to think, yeah, let's take them down. Because I think, as you say, Iron Man, have, they've got an amazing brand, but they've also, they, they have built up a lot of bad will, which you can do and you do do as a monopoly but it does mean that yeah. as soon as there's a sniff of a, a new, sexier alternative that has a little bit better customer service, yeah, people will jump. And the thing is, you know, it, it, someone like Iron Man can survive, even if everyone that doesn't, you know, who, who, who does an Iron Man doesn't like it and comes back, they can survive through their brand name for a whole new wave of people mm. coming through every year. But mm. if you've got two or three years where new people can't get in because they're still fulfilling all the, you know, the all the um, entries for, for previous years and you've hardly got anyone coming through, there's going to be that gap that that is that opportunity. It's just someone needs to have a brand that's, better than Iron Man, that sounds better than Iron Man. And I know, I, I, I'm sure that, you know, within Iron Man circle, within the triathlon circles, there are those names. But standing outside that, it, it feels like there's Iron Man. And, you know, I don't know any other um, No, names. you've got, you've got um, Kate Ruff, but that's just a, a, a standalone event. And similarly, there are, there are various other races that people know the race, but it's not a series. Um, but hopefully, you know, as you say, with that backlog, the smaller running races, it means that the companies that have really struggled will suddenly have huge numbers and will be able to potentially put on extra races that previously you'd always worry about clashing with the London Marathon and the, the big other races in the calendar. Whereas now with that backlog, with that new impetus for running that's happened over lockdown, that hopefully that people just were like, right, sod it. Next year we're putting on six events instead of two and they're all going to sell out and um, and they'll make their money back that they've lost over this time. But um, before we go on to Carl, uh, in fact, let's save this. Let's save this for part two. We'll save the uh, the Russian doping story. It's just a little one, but I know that Jody had a little, a little challenge you wanted to throw out linked to it. So um, we... 
Well, we've we've already introed the the episode with Carl right at the beginning. We've explained a little bit about it. It's just a remarkable story. So, Nick, thanks for your edit. Take it away, my man. Hey, do badders. We've got a bit of a different guest today. I don't think we've ever had an official walker on before, but um, Carl popped up in my news stream probably around 18 months ago because he was leaving Mongolia um, to walk around the world. And uh, we have found him eventually. He, uh, he got internet to check his email and got in touch, but he's currently in a cafe in Mexico having brought his own router to the cafe. So the reception may be a bit iffy and he's, uh, he's ordered a, a meze throughout this. So there could be some background noises throughout. But we think it's going to be worth it anyway to guess. So welcome on the podcast, the amazing Carl Bushby. Hey, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you for bringing me on. It's great giving this opportunity. Yeah, yeah of course. What's um, how, how does this – I mean, walking around the world, it, it, it just seems such a long time to be doing anything. So how, I mean, how did that all come about? Um, that's a long story as well. Um, the, 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 how this thing originated. Uh, I mean, primarily, this, this developed while I was in the Army. I did 12 years, 3rd Battalion Parachute Regiment. Uh, and during that time, um, well, this was during the you know, 90s, the world was a horribly peaceful place if you're a paratrooper. There was nothing <laughs> going on. <laughs> And trying to keep all these animals kept in a, in a cage like we were was, was difficult. And our minds would wonder and we would start looking for other challenges in the world. And mine settled on, on maps, world maps. And I had this thing about um, long distance journeys. And I, and I just couldn't quite let it go. For most of my life, I had this, this obsession with horizons. Like a good horizon would just stir the spirit like nothing else and get the, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. And I just... I would literally seek out these 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 great vistas, these horizons, and I think in the regiment as well, the parachute regiment is all about, you know, we're designed to, to fight behind enemy lines. So, fitness and the ability to go long distance, self being self sufficient, all that stuff on your back was was you know a lot of what we used to do was about mm. physical fitness. Within this environment, I think is where these ideas really were, you know, really developed, really grew. And then once you've got this idea, this, this itch, you can't scratch, and you take it to the guys and you say, hey, check this out, look at this line on the map, I could do this. They all tell you you can't. And then that's really it, because it's a bet. This is, then you just a bad bet in a bar somewhere. And at that point, well, the game's on, because you can't tell a young parachute that he can't do something, that it's too much. Um, and at that point, you're, you're, just, you're, just a, like you're a hound chasing the hare. There's how no going work, back. How does it work with the paras? Do, do you... Is it, are these endeavours something you've taken on while you were still serving and had to take holiday, or is it something that they endorse because you kind of wrap it up as training? Or uh, Well, I mean, the Army doesn't pay much attention to something like this on this scale, at first anyway. No one was paying any attention until the last year in the Army where I, I literally you know, convinced them, no, I'm leaving, I'm actually going to do this. And then at one point the Army actually got on board. And they were, there was talk about keeping me in for the first year as a paid soldier during this. 
And then someone kind of wised up to the fact that, well, they're going to find my buddy in some ditch in Argentina, stuff full of cocaine or something. And this probably isn't the best PR option right now. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a nobody. I, I don't have a history. So it's hard to back, you know, someone like me. with. And I have a very dubious history when it comes to physical fitness. I'm the guy who struggled and struggled and just hung in there, just made the tests, just managed to keep it going. So by no means was I the guy that everyone looked at and thought could do this. I was the guy who just had a lot to prove because of that. Um, I knew that I could do this. And, I, and within the regiment, I think you, you get taken, especially during the amount of time that I spent as a recruit, you get taken to your extremes. So you know where your limits lie in precise detail. When you're waking up regularly, on, on the med center table with two IVs in you, <laughs> go back out and do it again. You really get to refine your limits. You really get to understand where they lie. And you look at this and you can do this. This was doable, totally doable. Um, and that was it, the race was on. I think, uh, you know, from that point on, I just focused on it nonstop for a couple of years, I think, all the, you know, doing the math and everything and working logistics and working on those maps. So had, had you done a like a shorter segment, a shorter trial run of um, a long distance walk prior to this? Then, well, really, no. I mean, I bimbled around the southern coast on a few, you know, like a week long walk or something, like most of us probably do at some point in our lives, uh, and that pretty much had been it. Um, everything else I'd done had been with the regiment, and had been in that military context where we'd done uh, long hikes across. Kenya or Central America or wherever it is in Europe, um, Norway. And the good thing is that I, we'd done this in, in just about every environment that I needed to, to have at least have the basic experience and the basics in survival, so to speak. So that, that confidence as well that I'd, I'd worked in all these different environments, be it the Arctic, the jungle, the desert, you name it. And how does how do you actually start planning for something like that? Is it a case of just you know starting with a map and then going all right? There there are certain sections that I I know that I want to walk, or is it a case of just connecting up things that you know already? How how, how does that even start like on day one when you when you're when you're trying to plan that? Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is very much a connect the dots I think um, because originally, before I, I arrived at this final solution, on this final route, what I was doing, I was drawing lines on maps and just dreaming, daydreaming. And the, the lines were about five years here, five years there, three, two years here and there, in, on various continents. Uh, and these were never sufficient. There, weren't, there wasn't enough impact that, was, that would make it worth my while leaving a career for. Uh, and then one day, one of my birthdays, I got a, a card from my father, and in the birthday card, there was a note. Basically, he'd written in about a couple of guys he knew in special forces. My, guy, my father was special forces, SAS. He, he knew a couple of guys who had talked about the possibility of walking from London to New York over something called the Bering Land Bridge. Mm. Um, I, I had paid any attention, never come across this Bering Land Bridge concept before. Uh, and then suddenly um, it dawned on me what that meant. And I had a world map on the wall in the office. And I drew a line, literally drew a line from England all the way out across Asia, 
over the Bering Straits, Bering Land Bridge down to, um, I thought, no, I couldn't understand why anybody would want to stop in New York. So basically took the line all the way down to the bottom of South America. Uh, and that was it. It was, it was a, a visceral reaction to that line on a map. And that's, at that point, you knew you had it. Again, the hairs on the back of the neck, and there was no going back at that point. And then I started doing the math, and you were looking at, at, at best case scenario, this would be 12 years. Once you add in a lot of reality to the equation, because um, the pure math says you can do it in a few years, which we know isn't going to happen. Um, and you were looking at about 25 plus countries, um, and you're looking at about 30 to 36,000 miles, depending on just how much detailed group finding you go into. And that will vary every time you do it because the group's so long, so detailed. And because 12 years is, even when you go to job interviews, they're normally happy with kind of three to five year plans. Um, but <laughs> when you, I mean, what, what are you, what are you factoring, factoring in to get it up to 12 years? And also when you came to make that decision, were there certain things in your head you thought, well, I'm going to have to sacrifice these things from my life? I mean, it, it is a serious conversation. And I think in my, my first book, I mean, I think the first chapter is I'm, I'm sitting in a, a cafe in the town of Kingston upon Hull in England, my hometown, and I'm having a real conversation with myself. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go pretty soon. And I'm having to make that decision that there is, there's no... There's no way out of this. Like we're, we're not quitting halfway. It's it's once we go into this, we're not coming home until we arrive on foot. And then you and then you have to realize all of what's coming your way and the fact that you don't know what's coming your way. You you have actually no idea how this is going to play out. You've got at that point you have no support, um, nobody backing you. You've got you've blown just about all your money. Um, you've got a flight south, and that is about it. Uh, and then you, you have to realize the length of a, of a, um, the time that you're going to commit to this and the length you're going to commit to, is, it, it's going to take chunks out of you. Uh, and you. And you think about relationships and things like that, that you know are going to happen. But the, the real, this, this whole thing is about what would it take? This is, this is the crux of this entire question is what would it take to be able to do that? Um, and so there's a long list of things it's going to take. You have to be prepared to confront the things on that list. And I think the mindset is, is, is a very important facet because there are way too many reasons to quit, way too many obstacles that would, would be showstoppers. If you weren't committed at the most literally insane level, um, so absolute devotion to a point of madness and unreasonable, um, well, I, mean, I think would you, the only way you're going to get through this. Would you say you've, I mean, mentally, have you sacrificed the opportunity to a family? Absolutely. I mean, I had a, I have a family. You know, I have a mother, a father, and I have a son from a previous marriage. Um, that you know ended four years, about five years before I started this thing, uh, and that has been a tremendously heavy burden. That's, that's, that's a hell of a weight to drag with you. And it doesn't get any lighter as the years go by. Mm. And that's, that story is not over. That one was still showing with. Um, and, you know, that'll, be, that'll play out into the future. 
And have you have you had like when you first embarked? Did you have a a, a square conversation with your son? I couldn't. He was too young. He was five. Um, so I mean, the way the way I reasoned this to myself was basically that at some point he would join me on this journey. I could be of more value to him doing this than working, you know, a nine to five in a supermarket or something along those lines. That this was my reasoning. Um, mm. We were going to take on the biggest thing the world could throw at me, and down the line he'd be involved at a later date. Um, things don't quite play out the way that you might you imagine they will, um, but you know, that was the thinking at the time. And so, um, how much how much money did you have in the bank then when you, you took that first step? I mean, when I left the UK, I had like five hundred US dollars in my pocket, and that was it. That was a lot. Wow. And and what has been like? What what did you anticipate was going to be the way you funded this, and how has that actually matched up with the reality? Actually, quite well. Uh, me and my father, again, sat down and had the discussion. Look, we, we reckoned that if I could get through Latin America by whatever means available to me, um, by the time we hit the border with the United States, things would change. Um, oh, and by the way, we'd swap the, the route in the, in the reverse at this point, because the original plan was to, was to walk out of Inca, England across um, Eurasia and down mm. to the bottom of South America, but we, we flipped that, and we can discuss why later. But so we started from the bottom of South America. I, I believed in myself that I could do Latin America. Um, we'd hit the border of the U.S., and we, our best guess was at that point things would change, and that is pretty much exactly how much it played out. I arrived on the border in the town of Nogales. There is a Nogales on the Mexican side and Nogales on the Arizona side in, in the United States. And I arrived at, on that border. And at that point, we had nothing. Um, we were scratching and scraping to make a living. Um, we didn't know how we were going to survive in North America. You can survive in Latin America with a pocket full of rice. The, the weather makes that possible. The climate makes mm. that possible. The, the lifestyle down there makes that possible. And we pulled it off. And we, we could, you know, we could keep that. 20 miles a day going um, with what we could find on the side of the road, sometimes trash, and the generosity of the locals. Um, it's just staggering how, how much, you know, people helped me along the way. Um, so that became a real, it's become you know, such a big factor in this whole thing. And, and you know, family and friends at home that managed to scrimp and scrape together, um, you know, pennies in donations. All of this together was enough to keep me going. And then we arrived on the board with the U.S. And as the, the, the prophecies foretold, um, sure enough, out of the blue, people suddenly became interested. Um, we had a web hosting company that had been watching us. And they said, look, we're really keen on getting involved. And we'll put a couple hundred bucks in every month if we can run your website kind of thing. So that was great. Across the border into, into Arizona, um, met the BBC, who had blew a clue down there to, to meet me and start filming. And then I walked into a, a boot store in, a, in Tucson, Arizona. And what I, what I did have was a pair of these orthopedic footbeds from a company called Superfeet. And the company was on board. 
so the ball very quickly started rolling as soon as we crossed that border, just as we thought it would. Now, this was just enough money because we're not talking about major, you know, sponsorship. These are just handshake deals for a couple of hundred bucks a month. But that made all the difference. Because before that, we, we were having some rather dark conversations about, well, how do we survive in worst case scenarios? And we had come to the conclusion, we had rationalized it down to cats and dogs because people's pets will come to you. You don't even have to hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, would you have? So, uh, you know, you, you know, we were we were sitting down and working out a list. If worst came to worst, how would we do this? And there was, you know, there's some some interesting things on that list. Not being one of them. Wow. Um, we we never had to go there because these companies stepped in. You know, just as we were crossing the border, uh, and we had that the money and the where of means to survive in a much more expensive environment. Um, and a much which, more difficult environment to do this in than, than you know, down south. And were you actively kind of courting companies and trying to rustle up sponsors, or was it more just the, the noise you were picking up created that opportunity? Um, I had tried everything in my means to do that. Um, we spent years doing that in the UK. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, no idea of the enormity. I mean, you know, rallying support for uh, something like this is incredibly difficult, even if you're a professional with a, with a you know a real background, a real explorer, shall we say? Um, it just doesn't. This kind of thing doesn't lend itself well to that sponsorship um, realm because it's it's an open-ended for everything, and that's not what companies are looking for. They want they want that they want the K2 fund. You know, the the magnificent shots is the beginning, the middle, the end. Yeah, the, the PR company behind it all knows exactly where this is going, what the plan is. Um, but an open-ended thing that just won't go away is just a money pit that people don't want to get involved in. But very, very difficult. To yeah. Do. Yeah, of course. I, I guess unless unless they can tell, unless they can market themselves by telling your current situation, that is quite an obstacle. Yeah, and it's up to the it's up to the company, it's up to what they you know what their plan is. Um, if you're really good at this kind of thing, maybe you can make something out of it. Uh, and at this point, when we cross that border north into the United States, you're 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 walking into the target audience of these um, related companies, these outdoor companies, shall we say? Mm. Because at that time in in two thousand and two three, I think it was, there was not a lot of sales going on in Latin America. Uh, so you were stepping into their target audience. So suddenly there was an opportunity for these companies and groups to be involved in this, whereas before there wasn't. There just wasn't. But what you were doing, you were, you were developing a history, um, a long list of stories. You were proving your case and the fact that you're determined now. And you're, you've, you've been saying we. Were you actually traveling with your dad? No, this is the royal we. Okay, okay. Uh, I think we, because, yeah, just to clarify, it's just me on the ground, but it's it's never just me. It's a mm. team effort. Even when it's just the people on the ground helping me, just strangers, that, you know, and I've just had the most amazing kindness from the poorest of the poor, like literally meeting people who are living in huts made of car parts held together with string and cardboard on the side of a road in a desert in Peru, who just wanted to just pull me into the house, give me a bowl of rice, and then just literally talk to me. 
and showed me the 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 cockfighting roosters in the in the pens <laughs> and this kind of thing, and just have a chat with somebody that they just you know don't offer me on the road to to you know multi million dollar hotel owners who took me in and fed me and restaurant owners who have given me um, invites to feed at every restaurant that I hit on my way up north to Chile, for example. Uh, all this stuff makes a huge difference to a guy who's literally living off the side of the road at the time. So, um, and, so, and, and so, yeah. When, uh, and and uh, yeah, when, when you first started then, what exactly was in your bag? Well, I mean, we had, we had the beast. So before we started, what I did is I, I, I got a, a golf trolley and I, I took it to an engineering company in the town I live in and said, here, here's 400 bucks. Make me something that will carry about 100 pounds of equipment uh, that I can tie to my waist and pull. Uh, and they knocked up what we refer to as the beast one because it's a beast. They basically hang a lot, of, a lot of bags off of it. And basically what you're really doing is, is all your basic camping equipment your tents and your sleeping bags and that kind of stuff and cooking equipment and a stove. And then, of course, it really depends on your environment. It depends on how long between waypoints. When you're going to be into these big deserts, you're looking, you know, maybe a week or so on the road between places, then you need a lot of food and water. And you've got to carry all that. Um, and the idea, of course, is that you're not going to carry all this on your back because not for this length of time. You're just you're going to... Trashing knees and ankles and hips and whatnot. Plus, I'd already spent 12 years as a paratrooper, and most of us were banged up pretty bad anyway, as far as the knees and hips and things go. So, we really had to take care of this knee. So, we would pull the weight. Yeah, so, you know, we understood that pulling the weight and not bearing all that weight, because it was going to be a lot of weight. You just couldn't be able to do it for sections of the trip. Mm. Oh, just since we built, you know, this, this trolley that we would call the beast, and it was, a, it was just a beast. We loaded it up with a lot of equipment. Just so I'm absolutely, we're absolutely clear in kind of like the timelines here. So when, so when, when did you start? What was the, what was the date that you started? We arrived in Chile, um, something like um, just the end of October, a few days, and then we actually started. We actually stepped onto the road the first of November. Yeah. Um, Nineteen ninety-eight. Whoa! Wow. <laughs> where, where, where were you guys? Where were you guys in nineteen ninety-eight? University. I I was <laughs> um, gurning in a, a nightclub. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Listening it. to the prodigy Fat of the Land, I believe. <laughs> prodigy. That's right. <laughs> and um, when, like, in, in terms of your research for because obviously within 12 years nations change wars end begin um and and even terrain can change um like how much research did you go into figuring out the the best route and also understanding what could be really dangerous places well i think the the first thing was is there a route and that wasn't clear. Like, there are a couple of what we identified early on as the gaps. Um, to make this whole thing possible, you had to connect these continents. And we had, we had basically solidified this thing with two rules. And those two rules are that I cannot advance 
use any form of transport. They were totally unsupported. And I wasn't allowed home until I arrive on foot. So that kind of locks us into this thing and sounds, you know, very simple at first. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, and then you start looking at, well, is it even possible? Because we had, first of all, there was the Bering so-called Lambridge, mm. which, you know, was last day Lambridge at about 25 to 20,000 years ago at the end of the last um, ice maximum. Um, you know, that's when these continents were landlocked. Now, that, that, there is no Lambridge. This is the Bering Strait. This is a 57-mile gap of crushed, fast-moving ice. Uh, in the Arctic Subarctic. So that's a challenge. And at the time that I was researching it, I could find no evidence that anybody had ever made it. So theoretically speaking, it was just theory. There was absolutely no indication that this was possible. So my first time looking at this problem was, well, we're probably going to have to make this into a polar expedition, go north and try to drop down in, onto um, Siberia at some point. And okay. then we just... Yeah, I mean, the, the Bering Strait did not look possible. There was a couple of re reports at uh, the Royal Geographic in London, the Royal Geographic Society. I'd, I'd rummaged through some of the reports there, and they're all terrifying, full of failure. Um, so that wasn't going anywhere. Because they've, so, they've done it by car, haven't they? Or they've done it by no, vehicle? No, 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 not that, at all. That is a rumour that, that that's one of those facts that I've I've always taken to be true. <laughs> yeah, no, there, were, there have been a couple of attempts, and there, there have been, there was, so yeah, we can just talk about that, because there was a, a, the Ice Challenger, which was a, a customized made vehicle with these huge, like, giant corkscrews and tracks, and this thing would, would crawl its way over the ice, use the, the corks, giant corkscrews attached to the side to propel itself through the water and, and then crawl up onto the ice, move across the piece of ice back into the water kind of thing. Um, I think it got as far as um, the data line, because in the middle of the Bering Straits is the data line, it's the border between the United States and Russia, which I, you know, most people don't realize that the U.S. has a border with Russia. And mm. it runs right through the middle of two islands. And uh, there's the little diomede on the U.S. side and the big diomede on the uh, Russian side. And this machine that they'd made had got as far as the diomedes, and then the Russians basically stopped them at gunpoint. Uh, so, yeah, maybe it could have made it, but it didn't. Um, the only other vehicle attempts I've heard of are during the summer. So they, they strapped pontoons to Land Rovers and things. I met a guy while I was there at the time who was attempting this. And then you basically turn a Land Rover that has driven its way up through Siberia. You just turn it into a, a flotation device and then you know, paddle it across, across the Bering Strait during the summer when the Bering Strait is free of ice. And so what was your, so you were thinking you'd go up through Alaska into the North Pole and then... So we were looking, yeah, we were looking at routes further north because the Bering Strait looked like it was a too, too tough a nut to crack. Um, mm. it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult environment because it's like a choke point between two large oceans. You've got the Arctic Ocean to the north and the Bering Sea to the south. And the water is constantly on the move through this, this choke point. Um, plus, it's one of the windiest places in the world. And all of that basically means that there is no stable ice. There is no, it, it doesn't freeze over. It's always moving unpredictably. Mm. Um, it's just a horrifying place, especially when the weather's at its worst. It really is terrifying. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have tried. A lot of people have failed. 
have failed. So we at first weren't really considering them um, to be an option, but you know, we'll get to that story later. That was one. That was the main. That was the main gap. So that was the main concern. But that was so far away. Um, I had to get through the Americas first. Not only that, but I had to get through the first gap, which would be the Darien Gap. And this is the little-known border region between Colombia and Panama, which at the time was a raging civil war between the FARC guerrillas, the, Colum the Colombian government, right-wing paramilitaries, not to mention the cartels, hmm. where this is where all the cocaine plantations are, where the guns are coming in from the north and where all the drugs are going out up north. This was a very um, serious part of the world. Uh, I mean, did, it, it did, did you consider, miles, did you consider solving your financing? <laughs> did, did you consider combining that to solve your financing issues? <laughs> well, um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a real challenge. So that was the first thing we faced. So with all this, hmm. with, all, with, all, with all the years ahead of me, without having any backing and funding, uh, there was, we weren't looking at the Bering Strait. We would deal with that another day because there was an awful lot coming before we could ever get there. It was very hard to imagine ever getting there at the beginning. And in your... So, so we, it, we kicked that can down the road. And, and with, um, with the drug cartels, and I guess this the, the, the danger of, of Central America, did you have a strategy or did you have any kind of uh, plans or were you just hoping that you'd get lucky? When we, when we arrived in Medellin, Colombia, uh, that's the last city uh, in South America, this was our staging post for the Darien Gap. Uh, there we, we took some time. So we took a couple of months out, two reasons. A, we had to plan this very difficult route. Um, and two, we had to wait for the dry season within the jungle. So we had a couple of months to play. Uh, and we went to task. Um, we dug out just about everyone who had worked in the diary and got, we talked to the press. We sat down with the military and the police and everybody, and we compiled the best plan we could. And you, yeah, at that point, you had to have a plan of some description. The Darien Gap was, was, at the time, it was referred to by the BBC as the darkest place in the world. It had a real death toll. Everyone had a horror story. There was a, a Canadian backpacker who had been dragged out of a found full of bullet holes. There was a Russian cyclist who had been stopped by these left-wing guerrillas on the road that we were going to have to use. So these left-wing communist guerrillas had stopped a Russian cyclist and just shot him in the head. Um, there were stories where American citizens had been taken off buses by these people. They checked their passports, gave them the passports back and said nothing. Um, you just didn't know how it was going to play out. Eight months prior to me arriving in Medellin, two British botanists had gone into the Darien Gap looking for rare orchids and disappeared, never heard of again, presumed dead. Uh, it was a real challenge. Um, so, And the more information we got on this place, the darker and scarier it got, because basically what we were going to have to do was punch through the front line of fighting on what the Colombians regarded as the, the 35th front. Okay, so our plans, uh, and remembering that me, me and my father are, you know, ex-soldiers, so that this is the lens that we looked at this took through. It was basically an escape and evasion exercise. Um, so there were two plans, what we call the black route and the red route. The black route was basically avoid everything and anyone, go cross-country, 
and try and get into Panama that way. The red route would, was basically to use the infrastructure that was available to supply and feed ourselves to get as far into the jungle as we could. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the black route was way too ambitious. Um, we, we decided we couldn't carry enough supplies and the terrain was probably not going to be feasible. Mm. Uh, so we ended up focusing on the red route and the red route was a tricky one because the red route we had this one road system that left Medellin towards the jungle but the road itself was basically the front line of the python so fuck would frequently take these villages and towns along the road then the army would come and take them back then fuck would retake them and then the army would retake them and it was just this this nasty mess of you know army Right, left-wing paramilitaries or left-wing guerrillas, right-wing paramilitaries, death squads, all fighting for power over this town. So, yeah, it, it, it was... So, to take that, that road... And, and the army sat me down and had a frank conversation in Medellin. They were like, like, everybody is watching that road. Anything that moves on that road, someone is watching it. So, the, the moment you step on that road, it's eyes on. And you better be ready for that because stuff's going to happen. Uh, and that's pretty much how it played out. Um, our plan at this point was to dumb me down as a basically a, a hobo, a homeless guy. Because why would you want to kidnap a hobo? You're not going to catch anything off me other than ticks and fleas. You're not getting nothing out of it. So we kind of mm. played that game. So we, we, we disguised myself as a hobo, hoping that that would lessen the amount of attention. Um, what did you do to like, what? What are your tips to <laughs> want to be hoboers? Um, like, what were you covering yourself in mud? Were you changing your clothes, cutting holes in your shoes, or? Yeah, literally. I mean, we literally, you know, we we play, we we started rub, rubbing up, whipping up stuff, playing everything down. It's it's, it's an art. I mean, you literally got to go to the art uh, and to make things look old. And um, we dyed my skin. Um, we dyed my hair. We even went out looking for contact lenses, so brown contact lenses. It took us a while to realize that you're not going to find brown contact lenses in Latin America. <laughs> eventually, we worked it out. <laughs> yeah, it took us a while. But eventually, we worked it out. And, um, and then, yeah, we disguised my equipment as, as, so to make it look like sacks, uh, like it was just sacks tied together and stuff like that. And with, that was going to be the way we would do this, this road section prior to... to get into the jungle. And then once we had to leave the road, we, we went to what we call a jungle phase. And then we basically had this equipment, the backpack, we had a, a combat vest from the Colombian army, and, and then a, a layer of clothing, all of which was layered um, and had stuff hidden in it. Like my, my clothing, for example, we work, this is, we were working on basic concepts that you use in the army if you're working behind enemy lines, for example. Mm. So. Your equipment and clothing works in this layered system. So the first layer is your clothing. If you're captured by FARC and they strip me down to nothing more than the clothing that I'm standing in, we had enough stuff hidden in that clothing, sewn into seams and into, you know, backs of pockets and things like you could pat me down and not find it. So we're looking at maps, money, button compasses, um, blades, um, snares, uh, paracord, you know, this nylon cord, um, painkillers, a fishing kit, all this kind of stuff was sewn in. So that if I had the opportunity to, you know, to belt and run, I could just run with what I had, my, you know, just my clothing and still have enough to be able to at least stand a chance of surviving. The next layer was the combat vest. The combat vest had basically everything I would need to survive if I had to ditch the backpack. 
it's hard to run in a jungle with a backpack on. You're just going to get caught up and just snared. So you've got to, you've got to ditch the backpack and then run with what you've got in that, um, that combat vest. And then finally, the things that weren't as important would go into that backpack. And that was a layered system. And that's, that's the approach we had. And it, it, it was, it kind of, it worked to a degree. Um, we, we, the fact that we approached the Darien Gap with that mentality, I think, really paid off. And once we, once we actually made that switch and, and ended up in the jungle on the front line between two Colombian-held villages, that, and one of them was under siege that I had to get to. And there was this one track through these swamps to get to this river that I had to get to called the, river, the Atrato River. And I had to get to this village called Rio Sucio, and there was this one track. And, and, and FARC had that track, and they had Rio Sucio under siege. And once I'd got through letting the, the local right-wing paramilitaries and the army to give me permission to actually go on that track, um, we basically were going tactical, so to speak. So you're very careful. You move carefully. At night, there is no noise, no sound, uh, no light. And it paid off because that first, there would be one night in the middle of that track, and uh, a 20-man patrol passed me by at last light. Um, and to everyone concerned, that could only have been FARC, because FARC had that track. So, uh, and they, they passed where I was hiding off on the side of the jungle, the side of this track, at last light. So it was just getting really dark, when I could just make out and count 20 individuals trolling past, past me at that night. Um, so things were really tense and scary at that point. So getting back on that track was even scarier because it, as soldiers who train in the jungle, we know that tracks are all about ambushes. And in the jungle, in close quarter fighting, it's who can get the most ammunition down the fastest gets to ask the questions later. Mm. So it's a scary place to be. Um, and that, for me, was a huge concern. So getting down that track that morning was, was really, really tense. And one of the biggest concerns was the birds. The birds have these, they, they squawk when, mm. you know, these alarm calls. And normally you don't pay much attention to it. But that particular morning, I, I just remember the sounds of those birds squawking and giving me away on that track was just horrifying. It was like a nightmare. Just couldn't get them to shut up. And the more you waved your rams around, the worse they screamed. <laughs> and, and were so, you worried? Because I'd imagine that you know you, you feel confident in your ability to to manoeuvre. But actually, when you're having to get food, at some point you're going to have to get external help. Uh, and then I assume it's obvious from your accent that you're not a homeless um, South American. Uh, were, was that a real issue of knowing who you can trust? And, and and what was your story then when you were actually having to get food? Uh, in Latin America, it's not hard. You can pick up food anywhere. If you have if you have some pennies, someone's going to give you something for those pennies. So it's not a problem. They're not going to ask questions. Yeah. I was, I was I mean, just, they, just more the fact that you're you're clearly a Westerner at that yeah, point. Yeah, they, they the, know. They know you're a Westerner. You can't disguise that fact. So that road trip and that um, that hobo disguise had, I would say, pretty limited effect. There were a couple of times where I was pulled aside, um, most well, almost all, purely by the, the, the right wing paramilitaries. And the first time was, was a little hair raising because I was trying to cross a bridge in a village 
And I noticed a whole bunch of guys in front of me on the road kind of stand up and start looking at me. And then I, I sidestepped into a small cafe trying to think about what to do. And uh, I asked the guy in there for a Coke. Um, and I was, and I sat down and I thought to myself, okay, maybe I should, you know, figure out another way around this. And then these people came into the cafe. Uh, the owner of the cafe left and they pulled down the shutters. And I'm thinking, shit. I'm thinking, ah, shit. And then they, they, they pulled up their shirts so I could see that they had guns. And at this point, I'm like, you know, I have no idea these guys. I don't know if it's park. I don't know where I'm coming. I don't know what I'm dealing with. So I'm thinking, ah, crap. And then they sat down and they started this, like, gangster-style interrogation. And they were, who are you? And they would stand right over me, looking down on me kind of thing. And I, and I, what, I what I did have purposely was I had all these newspaper clippings laminated. And we had them from all different countries in, in Latin America, in Spanish. So at just a time like this, I could hand these things over and try and, try and talk my way out of this. Um, and they sat down and they started looking through this stuff and the tone changed and they became friendly and chatty and then things, the, the shutters came up and then they, they paid for my coke and, and, and <laughs> sent me on my merry way. And this was the first time I realized that we're not going to have an issue with the right-wing paramilitaries that don't have a problem with Western in general. Um, so they were suitably impressed and they were like, nah, go for it. And we would meet them a couple of times. They would they would come out on the motorbikes as well. They would come out to you, and then they would stop you, and they would search you like a police checkpoint. And it'd be a couple of guys in civilian clothes, carrying guns, and they would identify themselves as the right wing as as the right wing paramilitaries. And they would be polite. It'd almost be like a you know a professional checkpoint. And then they'd get back on their mopeds or whatever and, and go away. I met them a couple of times, and then I met a couple of um, old people, a couple of farmers that were carrying rusty old pistols and said that they were actually with FARC at one point on the road, um, one of the more contentious areas on that road. But they were, I think, high on something. and They just didn't seem to give much of a crap anyway. They were just partying on the side of the road. Um, and that was, that's who I met. When it came to uniform FARC, um, I avoided them at all costs. Uh, and that the closest encounter was that one we, we were just discussing in the, in the jungle one. And when, whenever you came into a situation, you know, either with FARC or with, uh, you know, any, I suppose any, any kind of flashpoint, was, was that kind of the, the, the way to, to get out of it? The way to do that is to, to, to sort of show your clippings and, and, and tell the story of, of why you were doing this. Did, did that always work? I mean, it's always worked for me. Um, smile. You, you wouldn't believe how much trouble a smile can get you out of. That's one of the major lessons I've learned on this trip. Uh, just keep smiling. Be everyone's best mate. You know, if you meet people who uh, are packing guns on the side of the road, be interested in them. Ask them for their stories. <laughs> you might not be. You might just want to get the hell out of the ASAP. But, you know, you've got you to work your way out of this situation. So you just, you've got to flatter them. You've got to, you've got to, like, want to be their best buddy. And they, they'll just react in certain ways to that. You've got you to... You're going to feel the moment. It's like with the guys, those individuals that were interrogating me in that little cafe that they trapped me in, um, you know, my Spanish was almost unworkable at that point. Therefore, I, I wouldn't have to answer questions that I was uncomfortable with. It, it, became, it just became a very difficult conversation. Uh, and if I really needed to get something across, then yeah, sure enough, my Spanish would get better. Um, you just got to 
you've got to play the game and just be very careful on where you go and try and direct that conversation the best you can. And do you think if you hadn't been, if you hadn't had kind of army backgrounds and kind of your experience of coming into different cultures, different countries, do you think it would have gone as well? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there are any, there are no specialist skills being employed here. Um, primarily what the army gave me was the confidence to go and do this mm. uh, and to take on this type of environment. I, I truly believed I could do that. You know, young paratroopers, we believe we're bulletproof. That's good conditioning on behalf of an excellent training system run by the, the British Army. <laughs> but you think you're invincible by the end of it. And that confidence will carry you a long way. Uh, and I think that that's, this is a classic case because there are, there are you know, so many opportunities getting into the Darien Gap where things are just bleak. You know, the kind of warnings that we were getting from people, the army and the right-wing paramilitaries. Like before they let me go down that track, they lectured me, the right-wing paramilitaries were lecturing me on that track before they let me go. And they were like, listen, you know, you, under, you, you have to understand, Gringo, that if you, if you get caught by fact, they won't shoot you because the noise of a gun will give away the, their position. They will put you under the knife. Um, and... That's it's a heavy day. It's a heavy day when you're faced with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a heavy day when you're walking down the track and, and you're passing defensive positions either side of you where the Colombian soldiers are literally dug in along the side of the road in, in fighting trenches, guns pointing outwards. <laughs> it's it's that's must be really deal. weird walking past them as a trap yeah. Yeah. when they're they, they trained army. And that, they looked at me walking past them and they, were, they jumped out and they were like, no, 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 no. No, 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 what are you doing? And then they took me to the commander in the middle of their position, and I had to spend the night with him while we, we talked this one out. And the next morning, after he talked to his bosses, basically we had to do a, a dictaphone recording, an interview where he was basically explaining what I was about to go into and that this was my decision. Because they were saying, well, we can't stop you, but we need you to know what's going on. And I had to repeat, repeat, you know, repeatedly on Dictaphone that, yes, I understand. It's my responsibility. I know what's going to happen. And then sign paperwork to that effect before they would let me go. Like, and actually, they probably is, have to change is, their strategy for a few days based on where your potential movements were. Nah, they didn't give a shit. They radioed the radio, Rio Sucio. They radioed the guys there and said, hey, listen, there's this guy coming down the track. If it makes it, it makes it. Heavy day. A pretty heavy day. And are um, you are you worried that now that you've you've almost set precedent that it can be done that some you know naive young um, traveller might take it on themselves and uh, without your experience have very different circumstances? I don't think I'm really going influencing that much one way or the other. People who are going to do those things are going to do this. I think. They do it all the time. Um, you know, remember, remember the guys that went in, the, the British botanists that disappeared eight months prior to me arriving in Medellin? Mm. Just before I set out into the Darien Gap, they came out of the jungle alive. And it turned wow. out that FARC, yeah, it turned out that FARC had captured them. They'd held them, didn't know what to do with them, hadn't told anybody about it, and then let them go for Christmas. And the hilarious <laughs> The, the hilarious thing is, is that the guys were set free into the jungle. So they ran into the jungle, realized they had no idea where they're going. So they went back to their captives and asked them for a map. <laughs> wow. So 
yeah, you can do it. You can get away with it. You know, that young Canadian lad, he didn't get away with it. The Russian cyclists didn't get away with it. There were others who didn't get away with it. Um, you know, it's, it's up to you. Everyone's got to make their own choices here because you're going to, you know, if you're in that area and you're looking at going into the Darien Gap, you're, you're talking to people, you're asking questions. You're going to know what you're up against because lots of people want to tell you because everyone loves a good scary story. Were you worried with, with starting in South America that, you know, after that, walking through Minnesota, you're just going to struggle with motivation because that, you know, the, the drudgery of walking across the middle America that there's very sparsely populated is, is probably equally as challenging in a different way. Uh, well, after that, um, <laughs> Without the threat, it feels pretty good. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't mind the sun after that one. It's, there were some good days on the road for a while. Um, yeah, I, I mean, coming out of the Darien Gap was, was just a huge relief. Um, we, and we, you know, we had, we'd end up spending 18 days in jail on the other side of that border as well eventually. And, and you know, face, being at gunpoint when, the Pan, when I ran into the Panamanians and end up in jail Ended up in a whole saga before I was finally released and on my way. And after that, no, you're quite happy not to, not to have any drama for a while. And was that because uh, they didn't believe that, that someone could come through the gap without well, was, some but, kind of tainted connection? Yeah. You, you have to, again, you have to understand what the area at the time, and it, this is one of the most complex, complicated parts of the world. Um, mm. Everybody's in there. It's, it's all insurgency, counterinsurgency, narcotics, and counter narcotics. You've got so many agencies and groups in there that everyone's suspicious of everything. Uh, the borders closed because of the fighting. So when someone like me appears in a village on the other side in Panama in a green uniform with a black bomber vest, suddenly facing a bunch of guys armed to the teeth, Unbeknown to me, the, the Panamanians were police were defending the villages on the other side because FARC would raid their villages for food and, and equipment and drugs and stuff, uh, you know, medicine. So they were defending those villages. So I, I, I literally walked into them at point blank range and there was this really tense standoff looking down the barrel of an AK. A lot of screaming and yelling, who are you, back and forth. Me on my hands and knees. Uh, me, sorry, me on my knees with my hands on my head before everyone calmed down, and then I ended up, you know, being put in a cell and just going through the process, because they don't know who you are. I mean, I had informed the British Embassy that I was coming, um, so they knew, but at the time, for a long time, I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody until I could talk to the intelligence officer for that region. And once me and him started talking, he realized who I was, my background, what I'd seen along the way, we could have some amazing conversations, and I could put a lot of information on a map for him. Um, you know, ah. I'd stayed with I'd stayed with Colombian soldiers along the way. I'd stayed with right-wing paramilitaries. Um, I knew I'd gathered a lot more information in Medellin than I was actually privy to. And my last job before I left the army was a battalion intelligence. So maps was my thing. And everyone marks up maps with kind of standard symbols. And I'd, I'd wandered into police station, an office in a police station once, the police HQ for the region while I was in Colombia and been instantly exposed to a lot of information that I shouldn't have been you know, exposed to. Uh, and just by interest, I just absorbed all this stuff, like hanging out with the Colombian soldiers in Rio Susia, these on the front lines there, 
the, the Colombian soldiers talk a lot. You know the size of the unit. You know the unit. You know the turnaround times. I can judge their discipline, their defensive positions, the weapons, the radios. I just, because to me, it's just interesting. When the commander of that group sits down with me and we share maps, he doesn't necessarily suspect that this long-haired, skinny hippie knows what's written on that map in symbols. It's all there for me. Um, so I'm just subsorbing it. So when we got on the other side, and the Panamanian's like, what, what did you see? Tell us. And I could just say, okay, give me a blue pen, a red pen, a black pen, and a big map, and just put it all on the map. And then we can have, a, and they were just ecstatic. They loved it, and that bought me a lot of. Uh, that was that was a lot of currency in that. Um, and I think after after that, they actually took me out of this, this prison that I'd found myself in with the hundred inmates, like low offenders, you know, low grade offenders. And uh, but they took me out of there, and they put me in the police canteen. Um, so for a lot of that period of time, eighteen days that I was in captivity, I had you know a little bit of special treatment. Which was worth did, it at the time run in, in, a jungle, in a jail in the jungle. <laughs> did you did you run into any issues from the other inmates? No, no, it was amazing. Um, it's really nerve wracking because if you can imagine, uh, in the Darien Gap, most of the in, there's a lot of West African um, villages there as well. So most everyone in that jail was of a slightly different skin tone to myself. I was about as fluorescent and Alunimous as anyone, um, so I was looking at a wall of um, you know ethnic people from that region, the Kuna Indians, and people even put in there, or West Africans. So I was the only white guy going into this this cell, and it was pretty intimidating. And they're all hanging on the on the you know side of this, the jail, yelling at you as you've been marched marched into this prison. They open the door, they throw you in, and then the guys come over and they're like, "Look, we've heard about you." Um, and they would bring me a piece of foam to sleep on, and they would take my food bowl off me, and they would say, here, you need a bigger bowl. Wow. What, and what do you think like, their motivation for that? for that was? Because they just heard about me. There's just rumours got out there that this guy had done what he'd done, and God's proud he got. And there was just a certain level of respect. So I went in there thinking, oh, my God, I am going to get so freaking hazed here. Like, this is going to be your worst nightmare. Um, and then... They were like, no, you know, they were just awesome. There were a couple of crazies in there that you have to keep your eye on, but generally speaking, guys were great. Guys were great. Do you, do you think there's now a, a small statue of the gringo in the uh, the intelligence headquarters of Panama? In, in <laughs> I your don't honor. think they would go that far. No, <laughs> but, but it was a very, very interesting time in the journey. And, you know, once you got to Panama as well, um, the British embassy staff, um, there was a, a naval attaché from the U.S. Embassy and a CIA guy. He took me out to lunch to the most expensive restaurant. They wheeled out a trolley with the most expensive steaks laid out on display on it. Said, what do you want? All we wanted to do is tell us everything that happened in the Darwin Gap. So there was a lot of interest, <laughs> a lot of eyes on, on the Gap. And um, you, you just got through you know, this remarkable adventure. And it truly was a remarkable adventure. Um, you know, we're not just, you know the, the actual jungle itself and, and, and how difficult it is to get through that jungle. I, that was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. I, I got to the point in the middle of that jungle. I reached the point where the GPS would tell me I'm on the border with Panama. And I remember sitting down and just weeping like a child. Like I just broke down. It had been such an intense fight to get through that jungle, to get to that point. 
and I was sick. I picked up all kinds of, you know, really bad, real bad diarrhea from the villages. Um, so ill. It had been such a physical experience in that jungle to get to that point. Absolutely exhausted. My food had run out long ago. I was now living off the jungle. Um, it was just absolutely horrific. To get to that first village in Panama, God, it was such a relief. Such a relief. I just remember when that. Was- when you said living off the jungle, I mean, what what would you say was the most unusual or potentially the the worst thing that you, you consumed? Oh, no. I mean, I was living like a king. I mean, fish, coconuts, fruit, um, it's there. Um, you know, one of, the fir- one of the first streams I got into was crystal clear streams. And I remember coming out of the jungle, uh, I'm into the streams, it's beautiful. And then all the fish just feeding off you. So hundreds of these fish just swimming around you, just picking your skin. And you suddenly realize, oh, crap, you know, everything you drop in the water here, the fish are on it. So I, I, I unstitched my fishing, my survival fishing kit from my clothing, and I, I knocked up a quick rod, and there was all these tiny little frogs sleeping about that would be bait. And I was, within like five or ten minutes, you're pulling in good, good food, and you could keep that going for a while. And because you were down in a gully so deep in the jungle at that point, it was, the light wasn't much of a problem, so I was willing to, to get a fire going and just cook some fish. Oh my God, dude, best stuff you'd ever eaten. <laughs> and the, the, the coconuts kept me going as well. Um, clean water, because we'd done this during the dry season, specifically for that one of these reasons, but we could take water, crystal clear water, at a, at a you know, just a stereotab, and um, it was filtered for you, and it was fantastic. Um, the coconut water played a big part. Coconuts are great, but they're heavy in saturated fats, and, you, and if you eat too much of it, you get really sick. So I suffered, suffered a lot from that. But there's a lot of stuff. It, seriously, guys, if you die, and if you start to death in the jungle, you probably deserve to die. <laughs> it's one of the easiest places to survive. It really is. And, so and it, wasn't, it wasn't that hard. And in, in terms of the terrain, because obviously South America's got some hugely peaks and um you know hard things to traverse like does does the route naturally avoid areas like that um I mean, my route through the americas yeah the route is the, it's basically the route of least least resistance uh, when you're on the road it's the shortest um, easiest path so you're on the road for you know 99 percent of the time the Darien Gap was the, you know, not the first time we had to come off, come off the road. There was one or two small occasions, but the Darien Gap was obviously significant. That was like a 200-mile swath of jungle you had to get through. And then when you, when you made it through to kind of more Central America and North America, were you getting different types of challenges, or, or did you find that things actually started to click when you were tearing through the Mars? Um, back on being back on the road was interesting. Um, the, the next main challenge was the traffic. What I found was that the population density in Central America is much greater than South America. In South America, the roads weren't always a problem. You are you are in the middle of nowhere, huge deserts. You know, you'd see a car maybe every hour or so in some parts. Um, in in Central America, holy crap, was it a different story? Like suddenly we were exposed to the traffic in a whole new nightmare. Um, a lot of near-death experiences uh, on 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 the scene had a number of accidents, road accidents. Um, I never caused an accident. And that's amazing. The fact that I was never hit by a car was amazing or a truck. Um, but man, there were some bad days on that road. 
Um, so Central America for me, yeah, the, the, one of the main main points I, I you know I, I would recall is, is those roads. Mm. Was, there, were, there were weeks that you, you felt like you were on the on the sum. It's like getting up every morning and having to go on the battle of the sum. You literally end of the, at the end of the day you'd just be shaking. And the next day you were just dreading it. And is, is that because they're too narrow then, the roads? Or is it because... The roads are too narrow. And I have the beast. And there's not a lot of room to maneuver. And there's only one way. You're going down that road. And at that point, you, you're willing to fight. You're willing to fight the traffic for that road. You've been doing this for years. You don't give, you don't give a shit. You, you'll go to war with these people if you, just to get that day's distance. Um, but man, there was some... All right, yeah, there was some real fights. Like there was one particular stretch of road um, just north of where I am now, actually, between uh, Tipec and Mazatlan in in Mexico, and it was a terrible piece of road. Uh, and every day there was these near death experiences. You had you know semis jackknifing and cars just missing me and people screaming and 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 because it's so heavy traffic on such a narrow road, including coaches and coaches that we use these routes. Uh, commonly, they'd see me every day, every week. They hated me to such an extent. And they would, there was one point where they would try and drive the bus into me. They'd slow down and they'd drive the bus into me to push me off the side of the road. And I'd just start swinging and I'd just be punching the side of the, the coach. And the people would open the window and start throwing bottles and tr- trash at me as the coach went by. And it was just this really rough relationship. How I didn't get shot, I don't know. <laughs> and what do you think but, they thought you were doing? Did you? I am you, doing, that... <laughs> you can imagine trying to go about your business, and there's this dickhead in the road with this ice cream cart or whatever it looked like, <laughs> in the most ridiculous place in the world, waltzing down the road in the most ridiculous circumstances. I mean, what an asshole! I'm amazed they didn't shoot. <laughs> they must have got all British. British. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Only, 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 literally, literally, only mad, you know, was it mad dogs and Englishmen. Uh, and, and it was, yeah, no, I, I was lucky. You know, I was lucky that someone didn't, didn't do me some serious damage at that point. And, and were you having to com- like battle with your own body? You, yeah, you, yes, of course. Constant, I, yeah. Because how many miles were you were you aiming to do, kind of in each each day? How are you determining that? And and what what physical um, constraints were you battling with mainly? Well, when I'd started this thing, I mean, I was about as fit as I was going to get. You know, I'd spent twelve years parachute regiment. I mm. kept that pace. You know, I'd really gone to town on what fitness I could before we started. Obviously, so when I hit the ground, I was you know late twenties, as fit as I was ever going to be. So that's those 20 miles a day I could do, with, you know, without much of a problem. Um, I'm not 28 anymore. <laughs> there, there are 20 days now that could feel like 50 miles. 20 mile days, I feel like 50 mile days. There. It's, it's starting to hurt. I need this to be over with somebody pretty soon before something gives up. And have, have injuries been an issue along the way? No, I've been remarkably lucky, remarkably lucky. Um, the closest I've come... You know, I, I haven't been hit by a car, which has been amazing. Um, the most serious injury I suffered was in um, Argentina in the first months, where trying to carry out repairs to the beast using a Leatherman tool, the blade of a Leatherman tool. And I had a black plastic pipe in my hand, in my left hand, and a, the Leatherman tool blade in my right, and I'm whittling a hole 
into the pipe and slipped. The blade went down into the wrist a couple of, about, you know, a couple of millimeters into the wrist, pulled out the blade, and then literally the blood just fired out in rhythm with my heartbeat. And wide-eyed, I just slapped my thumb on it, and, you know, and thought, shit, now I've, I've, I've done some real serious damage here. I felt all kind of woozy. I had to sit down, in, and this was in the desert in Patagonia. I'm a long way from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm really having a serious conversation with myself, trying not to pass out. Because if I pass out, my thumb's going to come off this, this hole and I'm going to bleed out. Mm. And I didn't know the extent of the damage. I don't know if I cut an artery. Uh, I didn't know. So I just kept the pressure on it for a while and then slowly began to release it. And then you'd see the, the blood bubbling. And then you'd whack your thumb back on it. And I remember lying down, looking skyward, just doing a lot of breathing exercises. And then eventually it, it kind of, the blood started to clot. And um, so I whipped out, out the, the, the suture kit and I, I, I put three sutures in this thing and then splinted the, the wrist, tied it all together and it, it, it held. And then, then I made it, you know, I think it was a two days later or a day late, two days later, I think I arrived at a place called Iskel in um, Argentina. Um, uh, and went to a hospital and they, they had a look at it and thought, not a bad job. <laughs> um, and what it turned out that I'd nicked the artery, but I hadn't severed the artery. So we're talking millimeters of a difference. If I had severed the artery, it would have been a, you know, a very different story. Um, I think that for me was probably one of the closest moments, I think, on this one. Because I'm a long way from anywhere at that point. And there's just no, no traffic on this. It was basically a dirt road at the time. And, and once you were through then to, to North America, into the States, like, was, how, how was that? Well, North America was, was a big day. It's a big change. You, you see it immediately. Um, coming from Latin America over the border, and then suddenly there were all these rules that suddenly get, you know, that people pay real close attention to. So, like, I went to, I went to a gas station in the U.S. with, because um, I'd been living off um, my stove, just gasoline. So I would mm. just take in one of these uh, MSR tanks and just load it up with gasoline. You can't do that in North America. So I remember waltzing over to the, the petrol pump and trying to use the nozzle into my tank and people rushing out of the gas station yelling at me. And I remember <laughs> trying walking onto a freeway just out south of, um, of uh, Tucson and the police instantly on my ass. <laughs> I, remember, I remember sitting down in Phoenix in that, in that main street when I got into town. I just sat down. And the police immediately turning up and moving me on. I remember walking to the um, the library in in Phoenix, Arizona, and as I approached the library, pulling the beast, the police came out of the library, confronted me uh, like several feet in front with their hands on their on their holsters, screaming, you know, screaming at me to stop, turn around, and walk away. Um, this was, you know, just after 9/11. So some guy who looks like his mad Bin Laden supporter pulling a big box on wheels wasn't welcome anywhere at the time. Uh, but I just found this, this instant resistance to just about everywhere I went. Like the police would turn up, up at night and move me on. It was, and, and there was just all these rules that now suddenly you were exposed to very different environments. The, the good point was that that is that there was a Burger King on every junction on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and it's insanely cheap as well. <laughs> oh, my God. It was nuts. And I had money now. 
you know, there was there was actually money coming in. We actually had people who were willing to put some money in the kitty, like real money, a couple hundred bucks a month. So yeah, I could eat. And um, did did you then try and change how you looked to smarten yourself up a bit then, and and actually try and um, create something that looked less threatening to a police force? Um, you you do pay a bit of attention to that, yeah. Um, I mean, not as much. I mean, at the end of the day, I had my system. Uh, when you live with your system for so long, you don't like anybody messing with your system. Whether it be the clothing you're wearing, however that clothing works, and however it, you know, you have your little system and you don't like anybody messing with it at all. I'm not going to mess with my system. That's a, that's, a uni- that's a uniquely military thing, though, isn't it? I don't think, I don't think people who, who haven't been in the <laughs> military be. before understand just how important the systems are for military. Yeah, and the other thing is, I used to carry, I used to have that these combat vests, these um, what we would call chest rigs. Now, um, I loved it. Like for someone on the road uh, after the after the Darien Gap, especially, I just loved it. They were, it was just so handy and useful. There was so much utility in those things, not even on the road. That I just I loved it until until eventually I ended up getting rid of it because of the tension that it would it would cause. It was just like you know you were crazy, <laughs> like one of these crazy uh, military groups hiding away in a the mountains of West Virginia somewhere or something. I so, yeah, I could dial it. Because back then, back then, runners didn't use those vests or anything. Like, like if you saw mm. people out and runners and hikers, they didn't type, use those vests at all. They, like, they, were, they were very sort of military-looking. So, yeah, back then, I can imagine you'd, you'd have looked frightening with all of that, you know, sort of connected to your chest. Yeah. I mean, back then, uh, I think especially, uh, nowadays, not so much a big thing. Everybody's... Mm. Walking around carrying long rifles and <laughs> combat, rifles. but back then I guess it was a little more contentious. And yeah, so basically I had to, I decided to put that aside, and uh, we had to we had to clean up a little bit. And how long had it taken you to get to America? Um, I think it was uh, what was it? Um, that ten years? No, sorry, no, 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 because we were on the about four year mark. We were on the four year mark. And three what, or four years. And what, what did you thought? How long had you initially budgeted mentally for how long that would take? We were really good with the math. I mean, it was amazing in South America because when, before we started this, we split the world up into like phases and sections, whatever. And we split mm. South America into two phases. The border between these two phases was the border of um, Chile, Peru, and Atacama. Um, and we, we decided, you know, that first phase would be a year. The second phase would be a year. And then depending on what the Darien Gap would be, Central America would be a year. And we literally arrived on those first two, um, you know, lines a year to the day. Um, so we got, we felt really confident that we had a real good understanding of the timings long term. Uh, things got a little more difficult in North America. Uh, there was a couple of unexpected incidents that slowed us down. Um, but we had the timing pretty, pretty good. You know, I mean, we had literally said the America's six years, Asia six years. Uh, we arrived in Fairbanks, Alaska in that sixth year. Hey, Dubaders, as you can guess, this is such a long story in terms of the length of time, but also in terms of the record. So we split it into two sexy ladies. The next one is right up. So thanks for listening. 
We'll see you in about 10 seconds. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back. Yes, and give me one more try. Cause a love like this should I never, ever die. Come back. Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>